welcome you to episode 6 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight to others working or worked in the case of some of my future guests in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. This is a bumper episode, so do grab yourself a large mug of your favourite hot beverage as my guest is none other than Ian Studd, a very well-known individual within the moving industry, having worked many years at such well-established companies as Abel's and Harrow Green, but is today known as the Director General of the British Association of Removers. Enjoy. Good morning, Ian. Welcome to Moving Matters. Hi, Colin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? Uh, Yeah, good. We made it through to Friday again, so always a good thing. (laughs) Absolutely. Can you tell everybody a little about yourself and the length of time in this industry? Uh, Yeah, well, Ian Studd, I am a lifelong remover. been in the industry now for 49 years, would you believe, man and boy. Uh, getting in at uh, the very young age of 13 Um, and I've had a fantastic time in this industry I love everything about it Uh, I'm married to Elaine I've got two beautiful daughters Emily and Becky um, both of whom of course are grown and long since flown the nest and have their own lives with their own husbands Um, and we have a very lovely lifestyle up in Norfolk where my wife manages uh, a boarding kennels would you believe so after after um, 35 years of marriage I can honestly say I do live in the doghouse <laughs> and talking of dogs my dog's been put out well into the garden with a bloody great big bone so he can sit out there and chew on his bone for the next hour or so <laughs> um, well one of, one of the reasons why uh, I said to you Colin it was probably better that I was in the office to do this is that um, <laughs> not only have we currently got or I say we Elaine has currently got something like 15 dogs boarding uh, we have three of our own and so they do tend to be a bit vocal wow well, I've got one and he's he's enough. He's enough. So at the age of 13, you got started in the industry. That's a very, very young age. What were you doing at the age of 13? Uh, well, um, like many of us in this industry, I, I come into the industry through my dad. So uh, my, we're from Stamford in Lincolnshire. And my dad was working for and had done for quite some time for a company called Steels, Steels of Stamford. Uh, ah, very, very yes. Well-established and uh, uh, a long-standing member of the BAR, who are now, of course, part of the Ballard stable. Um, so my dad was a, a driver, porter, packer for Steels for many years, and in 1971, Ted Steele, who was the founder of that business, uh, went off into retirement. And at that point in time, Dad said, "Do you know what? I want to have a go at doing this for myself. You know, I've done this for." for many years and I'd quite like to have a go myself so in 1971 GTS light haulage and removals was born and uh, of course he couldn't afford to employ anybody so um, I became a porter uh, and literally at the age of 13 got thrown into anything and everything Uh, and for quite a period of time my headmaster at school must have thought I was the sickliest child in Lincolnshire because you know, I had every ailment known to me, <laughs> quite a few that weren't. And um, 
you know, the seriousness of the illness was directly related to the amount of time that I needed to be away from school. So if it was a simple one day move, I might just have a a tummy upset or a headache or something like that. Um, (laughs) But if it was a a longer period of time, I might have full blown man flu. So, for example, you know, one of the one of the first contract pieces of work that uh, that dad got was delivering uh, white goods, uh, white good appliances for Hot Point. Um, so we'd have washing machines and tumble dryers and fridges and goodness knows what. And we always used to get the uh, the run that the Hot Point drivers themselves didn't want to do. So, you know, everything we had was sort of seventh or eighth floor flats in London. And, and so we'd quite literally go away for the week and sleeping in the back of the truck, as we all did in those days. So Yes, mum had to get quite creative in her conversations with the headmaster to try and explain where I was. Um, but that's how, how come I came to uh, get into the industry at the age of 13. And uh, I've been in it and around it ever since. So where did you go from? So you worked you work for your father's company. Yep. I take it when you left school, you then went full time into the yeah, family I business. Did. So, so d- despite what I just said, um, I still did do some time at school, and I came, away, <laughs> I, I came away from school with some qualifications, and went on to Bristol and did a degree in humanities at Bristol, which is absolutely worthless when it comes to being a, a removals person. But I had a great time in Bristol. I loved the student lifestyle and thoroughly enjoyed all of that stuff. But in in um, in seventy seven, when I finished all of that, I came back into the family business. Uh, and again, you know, my my day job was out doing the moving, and then in the evening it was a get home, quick wash and a change, put put something that resembled a suit on, and go out doing the estimating and so on. And then at weekends, my brother and I would do most of the vehicle maintenance ourselves. Uh, I would also help my father with um, looking after the books and the accounting processes. So, you know, it was a it, it was a, a, a reasonable grounding in the running of a small business. So I was with dad then through until the very early 80s, by which time, uh, as I've just referred to, my brother was in the business, my uncle was in the business, and there were really perhaps too many of us around. And as can happen with family businesses, something needed to give. And that something became me. I met a young lady on a blind date. That young lady happened to live in a little town called Watton in Norfolk. And Watton was very well known and still is well known for being the home of Abel's. And uh, Abel's in the early 80s were really taking off in a big way. You know, they, they were a very, very well regarded company, even in those days and had started to expand very aggressively. And um, as I said, I'd met this young lady on a blind date. We'd become quite serious about each other. And although the plan was originally that she was going to join me in Lincolnshire, we we did a bit of a U-turn and said, well, let's see what we can do if I come to Norfolk. So I applied for a job with Abel's and uh, joined them in the early 80s as a driver. By the way, the, the blind date uh, has been my wife for the last six, 36 years. So, uh, so, so Match.com works. Match.com works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we set up our home in, in Watton in Norfolk and um, uh, I began my career with Abel's. And that was an absolute, um, you know, it changed my life completely. 
There's absolutely no question about that. It broadened my horizons enormously from a, you know, an opportunity point of view, from an educational point of view, just the, the sheer scope uh, of everything, the capacity to do different things, go to different places, meet different people and have opportunity to develop my career uh, in a way that that I could see I wasn't perhaps going to get if I'd have stayed with with my father's business. So I joined as a as a driver. And one one thing I should say, uh, Colin, to this day, those early years with Abel's are amongst the most enjoyable that I've had in all of my many years in the industry. They were they were terrific people that I worked with, and still amongst my closest friends. Uh, and we still meet up now. And like like lots of, uh, you know, lorry drivers who are getting slightly longer in the tooth, could I say, you know, we reminisce about all of the great times we had together. And we seem to forget totally about the bad days. You know, they never get mentioned. But uh, we, we had a we had a whale of a time. Um, really, really hard work, but great people to work with. And a company that that genuinely believed and invested in the development of its people. Uh, and that certainly took my career in a different direction. So an example of, of, of what I mean would be I'd been with them maybe a couple of years, not, not too much longer, um, was still driving. And every member of staff would undertake at least five days training every year. That was just, you know, part of the ethos of the business. But you know, as a driver or as a packer, did I necessarily need to do another course on how to load a vehicle or how to back a china carton? And so after a couple of years, I found myself doing a course on presentation skills with people I'd never met before from all walks of life. And so it really, as I said, it started to broaden my horizons. And uh, I've moved into doing some estimating. I then moved into sales management with them. I did some operational management with them. And in my later years with Abel's, slightly by accident, I think, but I'd become responsible for pretty much all of its um, output around office and commercial moving. My big account was Norwich Union, as it was in the day. Um, We would literally have teams and teams of people every weekend in Norwich moving hundreds of staff around. Um, here's, Here's a change in circumstances for you. The, the um, you know, then compared to now. So Norwich Union in the day was by far the biggest employer in Norwich. Right. It, it was it was taking people directly from school, college, university. So the average age of the employees was re- reasonably low. And you won't believe this, but it's true. One of the strategies at the time to ensure that they were keeping their staff engaged and not, not allowing them time to get bored was to move them. So so every weekend we would literally be going and of course in those days it was it was every desk, every filing cabinet, every chair. Um we would literally go and move hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of staff around various buildings in, in the city. And the strategy or part of the strategy was was just around ensuring that they kept staff engagement. So those were challenging and interesting times. But but um I became responsible for all of the output of um office and commercial moving and actually i still have a um a bottle of bubbly at home <laughs> and a glass which is engraved and was presented to me by, by phil Pataldi for record sales in one month when i did a hundred thousand pounds worth of sales on office and commercial moving in one month which was 
Uh, wow. Which was significant back in the day. So, yeah, just just great times with Abel's. And, and it wasn't just about um, career opportunity. It was also, uh, as I said a moment ago, you know, it was I went to places that I could only have dreamed of going to. Um, you know, we travelled all across Europe. I, I've got documents at home from my first trip to Berlin when Berlin was still very much in uh, in the enclave of, uh, you know, in East Germany as it was. And because we were moving military people, uh, we were afforded the courtesy of being treated as military personnel. So that meant that we were dealing with the Russian customs rather than the East German customs and so on. It was just, it was an incredibly, uh, you know, rewarding experience. And, and I just really value all of those, all of those days. Met some great people, uh, moved some great people, was, was engaged in a number of very, very high profile moves, including for members of the Royal family. Um, and again, I've got, all kinds of mementos from those days at home, which I'm really, really proud of. Uh, I mean an awful lot to me and my family. You know, an example would be we moved Sarah Ferguson or Andrew and Sarah and the Yorks, as it were. We moved them as a couple. We moved them individually. Uh, and she gets quite a lot of bad press. But every time we ever did anything for her, there was always recognition at the end. And that recognition generally took the form of a garden party or something like that, you know, and we take our oh, nice. along. Yeah, and it's just stuff that you you couldn't, you know, you just couldn't invent, you couldn't replace. So, you know, Elaine, my wife, has met Sarah Ferguson and we've been garden parties and so on. So, you know, just fantastic experiences, which I'll always be very, very grateful for. So, so then um, by the mid-90s, of course, Abel's had changed hands. It had become part of the Hayes PLC. Uh, and the opportunity for progression, and this was my perception, and I might be completely wrong, but the opportunity for progression seemed to me to be not quite as accessible as it had been under family ownership. But, you know, I was, I was still enjoying life and doing well. But then out of the blue, I, I got a a tap on the shoulder from a company called Harrow Green, based in, in London, of course. Uh, and as I said, I'd become, I'd become responsible mainly for doing office and commercial work, and uh, they, they'd become aware of me and said, you know, why don't you come down to London and, and join us? Clearly, you're losing too many jobs to you, Ian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, when I, <laughs> when I went to my interview with with Harrow which is an altogether strange experience, but, you know, more on that later, I suppose. But Tony Sullivan, who was one of the owners and co-founders of the business, said to me in the interview exactly that. We, we at Ables had secured a move for Essex County Council based in Chelmsford, and it was a big, uh, it was a storage installation and then staff move, and it was a seven or eight-month project, which I secured and then project managed. And Tony referred to that in the interview that he said uh, he thought I'd done well to win it and then even better to, to deliver it. Because <laughs> and commercial with, with Abel's wasn't the core business. Yeah. So there was always a, a, a bit of a, a challenge around getting things done. Uh, but anyway, so um, I, I joined Harrow Green in um, January 97. And that was... I think without any shadow of a doubt, the biggest culture shock I've ever had in my entire life. 
So you you, you go from um, you know what was a very 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 structured environment in Norfolk with Abel's where where you know the ethos of the business was really well defined and you know its its presentation was just second to none and the presentation was what you actually got as a consumer you know it was it was it was very much built on on, on the quality output and I'm not saying that Harrogreen wasn't but it it was on my very first day I just could not get my head around what was happening it was organized chaos <laughs> yeah. we were there in this office in the east end of London with with 70 80 100 men literally out in the yard being allocated jobs and and oh, wow the the office environment at Abel's was was quiet controlled the office environment at Harrogreen was exactly the opposite you know it was people under pressure needing to get things done and and uh it was wow this is just so different it is unbelievably different and wasn't Harrow Green, sorry for interrupting, wasn't Harrow Green primarily just office and commercial? It was, they, don't, yeah, they don't do domestic, no, do they? No. no. Well, they, they, they have a, uh, a very small division that did domestic, but its, it's yeah. core business was very much office and commercial. And as I said, I'd come to their attention because of the work I've been doing in that area with Abel's. And so I had the opportunity to, to join a specialist, a specialist service provider. And... Um, so yeah, part part of that uh, part of that agreement, um, part of the contract of employment, was that we needed to move our family home down to be nearer to to the office because obviously we were living in Norfolk, and so I had six months or so to find a new home, get the family down, get the girls into school, and all of that kind of stuff, and I was living. Four nights a week, generally in a in a bed and breakfast in the east end of London, and just kind of getting home to Norfolk when I could. And um, I'd been home. I'd probably been at, uh, at Harrogate only three or four weeks, uh, and I'd been home one evening for the first time in a number of nights, and spent some time at home with Elaine and the girls. Drove back down to London the next morning, really early. Got to the the yard uh, at Bow, where the offices were. And sitting in the car, watching this chaos going on around me, and it was organised chaos, <laughs> but it was just absolutely manic. And watching this stuff going on around me, and uh, I just thought, I don't know if I can do this. I really don't know if I can do this. I just, I didn't feel as I was getting my head around it. And um, I rang Elaine as I always did, say, you know, I've arrived, I'm safe, everything's okay. And she said to me. You don't sound very happy. What on earth is the matter? And and I sort of umming and ahhing a little bit. She said, "Come on, what is it?" And I said to her, "I'm just not sure that I'm getting this. I'm not sure this is what we're cut out for." And uh, bless her, she's she's the voice of reason in our house. And um, she said to me, "Well, you know, whatever you decide," she said, "I'll support you quite happily, and we'll do what you want to do. But make your mm 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 mind up before we move home." <laughs> so, um, that evening, uh, and for the next two or three nights, I was back into my bed and breakfast. And I still think to myself sometimes that had I have gone home that day, I'm not 100% sure I'd have gone back. Really? Yeah, because it, it just it just was so, so different. But anyway, that all of that passed, and I went on to have a, an incredibly successful and rewarding career with Harrow Green. 
I, you know, I joined them as a uh, as a sales executive. I became sales manager. Then in 2002, when they acquired a competitor business in the East End, which was Exclusive Group, I went and headed that company up. And then in 2006, I, I had um, the opportunity to join the board of Harrow Green and, and join them. So I ended up having 18 really, really productive and happy years uh, with Harrow Green. But it was it was just that initial, you know, that, that period of kind of trying to get used to life at 300 miles an hour as opposed to the 100 miles an hour that it had been in Norfolk. Um, wow. Yeah. And again, it, it, it completely broadened my horizons because the the specialist office and commercial moving market, and I, and I say this with the greatest respect, particularly in London, is is just, uh, you know, it, it's an industry in its own right. It has its own set of rules. It has its own parameters. And you need to very quickly get to grips with what they are. Uh, and I built some fantastic relationships uh, again there. You know, some of bearing in mind I've, I've moved on. Uh, I left Harrow Green five years ago. I'm still in uh, direct contact with many of my clients from those days who had become friends over a number of years. And we still meet up and go and have a, you know, the obligatory curry now and again and, and chew the fat about the good old days. So, yeah, it, it was um, all part of uh, of the education of this industry. Now, here's the thing, though, Colin, and again, I don't think I'm unusual. All of this that's that's happened, you know, my entire experience in my career is entirely accidental. You know, none of it. I don't ever remember sitting down and saying, I have a plan. This is what I want to do. All I all I can say is that I've always been open to recognising and exploring opportunities if I think they're going to benefit me and my family. And I've always been ambitious, uh, and I still am. But I certainly didn't in 1971 say to myself, well, you're a porter today, and guess what? In 50 years' time, you can be the Director General of the BAR. You know, it, it's just... It's, it's, I think our industry is unlike no other in that we find ourselves sometimes reluctantly shoehorned into doing roles that we hadn't necessarily planned or thought were ours to do. But, you know, recognising that those opportunities arise and, and having, uh, you know, the confidence in yourself, the gumption, call it what you will, to say, well, I'm going to have a go at doing it, is, is what makes this industry work. And I say again, you know, I'm not alone in that, but um, it's been a it's been a real ride that I've enjoyed along the way, and and I'm just hugely hugely grateful, you know, for the support and input of those who I've worked for and with that have allowed me to to achieve all the things that I think I've achieved, um, you know, at a personal level. And long may it continue. It's it's just the most fabulous industry to be in. It, it, it is a. You just make so many friends. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And, and and we are we are exactly that. We're about people. Yeah. And and um, all of this stuff that I talk about, you know, is all inextricably linked with the people that I've met along the way, who are very very dear to me, all of them. So, what challenges did you overcome in your removals? Uh, life as such pre var so I, I think i think perhaps just following on from from what i said colin you know i'm a great believer in that with every challenge there's an opportunity 
and the staff here at Watford will roll their eyes to the heaven when they hear this on recording because it's just me rattling on again as I do every day. <laughs> you know, if if um, if we simply accept that today is as good as it gets or is the final outcome, then there is no room for progression. And I'm I'm sorry, I don't accept that in any way, shape or form. There's always something that could be slightly different, slightly better. And there's always something that, that could help me to develop my skill set or others around me to develop theirs. So the challenges I've faced, I guess, are the same ones that everybody faces in, in their careers in this industry. And it's, and it's trying to really work out what, what you want and how you want to do it. But I'll go back to what I said a few minutes ago. You know, I've, I've, I've looked at those. I've seen those opportunities when they've arisen. I've recognized those opportunities generally. Not all of them have worked out. Absolutely not. You know, there have there have been a few blind alleys along the way. But but I guess I guess the, the, the biggest challenge out of taking that approach is that I haven't always been qualified for the job or for the, the you know the task that I've put my hand up to do, but I've always been prepared to learn very quickly and get on and do it. And and I think I've been reasonably successful at doing that. So I've I'm I'm not I'm not afraid afraid to apply myself to doing something. I'm more afraid about missing an opportunity. So so the challenges I suppose are really about having achieved something, then you know, it's a bit like the old sales adage, isn't it? You know, the answer is always yes and then work out how you're gonna do it. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and and I suppose outside of that, the challenges have been around balancing the family life because as I said, you know, we had a we had a very good home close to family in Norfolk and then we upstakes and move everybody down to Essex for 18 years um, so and we had two young daughters at the time so the the changes to school environment and so on for them was all part of that uh, of that consideration but you know it's all worked out and it's worked out well so I, I don't I don't dismiss the challenges but there's nothing there that that can't be overcome I would have been more fearful of missing the opportunity. So if you could change anything from your moving past, is there something that you would change? And if so, what um, would it be? No, I wouldn't change any of it. Uh, I've, I've been absolutely, I've, I've been hugely lucky to have the opportunities I've had. And, and again, I say I've worked very hard for them. You know, they've not, they've not just been handed on a plate to me. I've worked very hard for those opportunities. But equally, you know, I've been lucky in that you have to be in the right place and at the right time and all of that stuff. If there's something I would add to my experiences of the past, it would be, and I'm, I'm a little bit envious here, is that if I look at the the Young Movers Group, for example, today, they have a terrific opportunity to grow a peer group and to learn and support each other as their careers develop. And I never had that, you know, that that just wasn't available to me. I, I had I had a network within the company I worked for, whether that was Abel's or whether that was Arrow Green, and to a lesser extent working with the family business. But what I didn't have was that circle of influence outside of the business necessarily. And I envy the young movers of today that they have that. And what what, what I would say as well, Colin, is that I think the Young Movers Group that, that is now really active and is very proactive in terms of its outlook, they're a fantastically talented, gifted bunch of individuals. 
And when, when I look at what they're doing and how they conduct themselves and what their plans are, you know, it does it does give me a great deal of comfort that our industry is in very safe hands. And these are the, you know, these are the people that are going to take the association and the industry forward into, you know, 2020s and beyond. So I would have loved to have had that network and I would have loved to have had the support mechanisms that are far more available now, I think, than they were then. I mean, you know, an example of the difference and it just I don't think it could happen now. But it wasn't unusual back in the day. On on the day I joined Harrow Green, you know, my whole induction program was arriving at the office at Bow at seven thirty, being shown where the sales office was, being shown where the tea machine was, and being handed, uh, you know, a bundle of calls and said, "See you later, off you go. There's your day's work." And you know, it was that new environment. I was trying to get my head around, and you think. Really, I need to be able to talk to somebody and ask what this all means. And I think having that peer group today is a massive, massive plus. It's not a regret. It's not anything I would change. It's just something I wish I could add into it. I would have liked to have added into it. So you you, wouldn't, you didn't have a peer group uh, as such when you started off in this industry. I take it then it's technology that's allowed the peer group because now we can all stay in touch more on a regular basis because we have email and we can send text messages and maybe in the early 80s and stuff like that it was harder to stay in touch with people unless you picked up this thing called a telephone yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> something yeah. that people yeah. don't seem to use these days yeah. again again when i joined harrow green in 1997 we um the company employed a young lady to do nothing but operate the telex machine <laughs> fantastic um you're absolutely right i mean part part of the uh part of what makes that more manageable now and more accessible now is having um the technology to completely you know wholly interact with people at any given time of day or night and not just with individuals but groups but i don't just mean that i mean it's this this again is about a group of people who've come together with a desire to help shape their career paths and the the future of the industry as a collective and to use their experiences to help others along the way you know very very specifically so i think i think that is just a fantastic fantastic asset and something i would have loved to have had access to what is your high point of being in the industry now i know you've mentioned you know at ables you won a job from harrow green and obviously harrow green you became part of the board of directors uh, what would be your high point? There are so many, and there really are so many, you know, in, in no particular order. You know, top of my CV still, not that my CV is getting any airing these days, and I've no intention that it does, but top of my CV still is HGV Class 1 driver. I was so, so proud to get that license, and, uh, you know, it, it remains there to this day. As I've said, I, I travelled an awful lot and went to places and did things and met people that otherwise I would never have done. Uh, I got my uh, International uh, Transport Manager CPC licence, which is a proud boast. Many moves to the royal family, I think I've already mentioned that. I mean, and then when, when I went to Harrow Green, again, it opened up a whole new marketplace of opportunity. And for the first time in my career, when I joined them in, in January 97, I had a sales target and my target for the year I will never forget it 
there was £860,000 worth of new business in year one. That was my target. Um, and there were commission structures based around that. And I was going in pretty much from a standing start. Having been there for three months, maybe four months, certainly not longer, I was given a tender contract opportunity to move a collection of books for the British Library. It's rare book collection. And that was something I'd just never, uh, something of that scale and complexity I'd just never got involved in in the past. Um, and it was a huge amount of work. But got through it, submitted a quote, and yes, we won that particular piece of work at just under 750K. Wow. Worth of work. So, so having been having been there for, for less than half a year, I pretty much smashed my sales target. So that was a high point. And, and actually, you know, just doing that job, if you give, give you some kind of context, this, this is the, um, the nation's historical uh, literary archive. And, um, you know, the, there was huge security around the move. There were huge insurance risks and implications. Each vehicle load, for example, had to be insured to the tune of £20 million. Pounds. And often, very often, that was one crate. And that one crate might contain one book. You know, it was it was a hugely complex move that went on for the best part of two years. So that that was a massive high point. And if you like, that sort of proved my worth in the in the London office and commercial moving market. So I look on I look back on that very fondly, not least of which because I earned some good commission out of it. <laughs> that always helps. Yeah, it always helps. Joining the board of directors of Harrow Green, yes. Um, and again, that that uh, again opened my eyes to a whole range of different things. And I I then got involved in strategic decisions around the business uh, looking at acquisitions and that kind of stuff so you know became far more involved in the running of the business rather than just the day-to-day operating of it so that was that was great and then of course a real high point has to be my involvement with the BAR which began in the very early 80s with um, going to area meetings in East Anglia up at the Flying Fortress in Bury St Edmunds been there, which many old salts will remember with fondness, uh, and it, and it's quite interesting that some of the discussions that we would have in those days are absolutely mirrored in the discussions that we're having today. Slightly different context, maybe, but but you know, not a million miles adrift. So so yes, I've been uh, involved with the association for many years. I joined the council of the CMG in two thousand. And then an absolute high point was in 2007 when I was elected chair of that group and then joined the board of the BAR. And again, that opened up yet more opportunity for me to get more involved in our industry at the very highest level, you know, with um, with the luminaries of the time, you know, Jonathan Hood, and Matt Purdy, David Bunting, Sylvia Lane. You know, Paul Fox, of course, Rob Bartup, you know, just some terrific, terrifically talented, very clever individuals that have, have helped me shape my outlook uh, in terms of what the industry is about and what the association is about. Uh, and then in 2012, of course, I was elected president of the association and served a two year term. And that was an enormous honour. Um, you know, at the very, very pinnacle of our industry, in, in in my opinion. And I was just, it was just a massively, massively proud moment when I, when I stood at conference in Windsor in 2012, and the outgoing president 
hung the bling around my neck and to have the chain of office was just tremendous, absolutely tremendous. Uh, and, you know, I know the association has its critics um, and I know that it's not to everybody's taste or everybody's cup of tea, but I genuinely think it is, you know, it's about doing the right things for our industry to the best of its ability and representing the industry generally, not just BAR members. And I'm a firm believer in what it does. So so to have that honour of being at the head of the industry, you know, was was just absolutely amazing uh, you know my family uh having them there seeing this this uh you know the, the um chain being bestowed around my neck as it were and my friends from the industry was just wonderful and then of course we shouldn't lose sight of where i am now because in 2015 the opportunity came along to actually become an employee of the association rather than a, uh, an elected officer to become its executive officer and having gone through a, a robust recruitment process, you know, I was absolutely delighted to be offered the position and incredibly proud and honoured to take it on and, and to now lead this association through what has been some challenging times, I have to say. <laughs> but it's been uh, it's been a fantastic honour and, and an absolute high point. So. I'm rambling on a bit there, Colin, and apologies for that, but there are so many high points, you know, and I look back on each and every one of them with real pride and fondness. You can ramble on as much as you like. I'm sure the listeners would love you to ramble on. The, the BAR thing we'll come back to in a moment. So what advice would you give to a young Ian Studd just starting out in the industry? Uh, I, I would say just you know, have the courage of your convictions and do stick your head over the parapet because, you know, these opportunities are definitely out there. Um, you know, we've said several times, a lot of it can happen by accident rather than design, but you have to be prepared to stick your head over the parapet and you have to be prepared to say, yes, I run the risk of failure, but I want to have a go at doing this. And, you know, the the opportunities, I'm bone, I'm bone no means special in any way, shape, or form, you know, if I can take these opportunities on, if I can make things work, then others can do equally the same. But it is just about having the courage of your convictions. Don't be afraid to fail. Stick your head over the parapet and say, let me have a go at doing that. So you are currently the Director General of the British Association of Removers. Can you give a quick overview of what the BAR does? Yeah. So we we are... I mean, there are a, a whole range of different associations and groups that exist across the removal sector now, but we are unquestionably and undeniably the oldest and the longest established. And we do have an absolutely genuine desire to represent the industry, uh, you know, certainly our members first and foremost, but, but the industry at large to better everybody's opportunity. I appreciate some of that might sound a little bit elitist. It's not meant to, but it is It is a genuine view. And we accept that we're not everybody's cup of tea and we accept that others will want to do things slightly different. But we do believe that, that the role that we take in the industry isn't replicated anywhere else. And we see ourselves as being a regulator uh, to a large extent in an industry that is largely unregulated uh, and has opportunity to mislead and cheat consumer and employer alike. 
And our regulation takes two forms, really. Uh, we have our criteria of membership and we have our code of practice. And both of those elements are mandated and both are inspected annually at every member location. And we manage compliance rigorously. So in the event that we visit a member site and we find something that isn't quite right according to either one of those measures, then we'll issue a non-conformance notice and that non-conformance then has a time window to have remedial actions put in place and then we retest. So I think I think we are, and the code of practice of course is underwritten by uh, CTSI and we ourselves are audited by them in terms of its application. So we are able to demonstrate to consumer to government bodies, to media, to um, uh, partners and to commercial opportunities that we are applying a regulation and a control mechanism that is auditable and beneficial to members, consumer and partners alike. So one of the other things we do is we're a key lobbyist and we spend, and I certainly spend a good deal of my time, uh, as I've said, representing the industry. When I get the opportunities to speak to government departments or, or other trade bodies, organisations and associations in the property moving market, for example, I'm introduced and I introduce myself, of course, as the Director General of the VAR, but I'm there as a representative of the removals industry because we all share the same challenges. We all share the same problem. We might have a, a different badge on the side of our trucks. We might have a, a different outlook in terms of where benefit is derived from membership organisations, but we all share those same issues. And so I very much see our role as being at the head of the industry. And I make no apologies for saying that, you know, our, our vision is to be the go to voice for the removals industry. And I genuinely think that's what we are. And we will represent the industry to the best of our ability. We've also introduced over the last couple of years, the last four years, further consumer protection mechanisms through our independent dispute resolution service and our advanced payment guarantee scheme. And those aren't replicated jointly anywhere else in the industry. So they're providing significant consumer benefit. So, you know, I think that's a brief overview. The, the, I think the bottom line with the BAR is that sometimes there's a view that perhaps, you know, a company might join the BAR and we become their own personal marketing team or their own personal sales team that really isn't how it works and it's, it is not how it can work we can't we can't sell the benefit or the usp of any one of our member businesses any better than they can and neither should we you know they live their business they breathe it they have its ethos and so on but what membership of the bar does serve to do is to underpin the message that they're giving to their consumer because we're almost the validation behind the claims that they're making because it becomes auditable through the work that we do in regulation uh, and, and providing those consumer protections. So, you know, I think we have a key role to give that consumer confidence and to represent the industry at every opportunity that we can with the legislators to make sure that we get the best representation that we can. So what prompted you to apply for such a role within the industry, the Director General of the BAR? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so it, was, um, it wasn't something I'd, I'd necessarily contemplated as a career plan move. You know, as I 
said a couple of times I've had a long involvement with the BAR and served on many councils, committees and, and been an active member of the board for, for 10, 12 years. And when my predecessor decided to head off into retirement, my term of office as president had come to an end and Gary Whedon had followed me into the chair. And at that, at that point in time, as, a, as an outgoing president, you don't completely fall off the radar, but you become an awful lot less involved in the day-to-day stuff of the association. Uh, and so I'd said to Stephen Vickers, my predecessor, that I'd be quite keen to stay involved and help in some capacity if I could. And it was at that time that the, the Trailblazer Initiative, the apprenticeship scheme, was beginning to come together. And so I, I took on the role of representing the association in those combined logistics industry meetings to do with Trailblazer. So I was, I was doing that, but I had no formal role, no official role within the BAR. So Stephen decided to head off into retirement and Gary contacted me and said, I know you're not on the board anymore, but would you help us out by joining a recruitment committee to find a replacement for, for Stephen? So when I got over the, the sort of shock of what Stephen's leave, blimey, okay, um, I said, yes, of course I was. And, and together with board members at the time, nominated board members, we formed a recruitment committee to go and source a new director general. And we'd started to look at a number of CVs and put some timetables together for first interviews and so on. And through uh, through that first sort of two or three weeks, I suppose, I, I got, I just started to receive really random messages, texts and emails and, you know, things like, have you thought about doing this? Or why don't you stick your head over the parapet? And I hadn't really thought about it. And I guess the fact of being asked to serve on this recruitment committee sort of said to me, well, not that I necessarily thought about it, but it sort of said to me that perhaps they don't see you as being that person. But anyway, we, I spent a few of these messages and um, sat down with Elaine to talk about stuff, as I always do, if there's anything like this, and said to her, what do you think? Anyway, we, we thought about it long and hard. And I thought, well, do you know what? I really do love this association and I love this industry. And, you know, much as I enjoyed my time at Harrow Green, this was an opportunity that I just thought maybe I can make a difference. And so I contacted Gary and said, um, I know I told you I would serve on the recruitment committee, but actually I don't think I should because I'm going to apply for the job. And uh, so at that point, I, um, I removed myself from that committee. I submitted an application and went through the same process as everybody else. And it was, it was actually quite bizarre because that is the only interview I've ever had or attended where I knew the people who were interviewing me. Because I <laughs> Uh, and you know it was it was quite strange, but you know, hey, we got where we wanted to be, and and uh, and I was offered the job, and then took it on in July two thousand fifteen, and and it's been absolutely everything that I thought it would be, and it's been several things that I thought it I didn't think it would be, but I guess that's again that's part of the learning curve, isn't it? But um, I just felt. The BAR has done an awful lot for me over the years, and I genuinely thought this is an opportunity for me to give something back, and and I do think I can make a difference. So what is the role of Director General, and 
How has your time been as Director General the last five years? <laughs> okay, so so the role of Director General is is that of the Chief Executive of the Association. So I am responsible to the board, and I really am. I would make that very clear because there can be there can be the view out there perhaps that that the Director General is something of a lone wolf and just does what he wants. Nothing could be further from the truth. I can assure you, I am entirely accountable to the board. But I am tasked with the day-to-day running of the association because you you think, you know, when you look at the board and its construction, they're all, with with the exception of me, they're all elected officers. So they're giving of their time freely to help support the association. But I am tasked with being its spokesperson, with determining the ethos of the business, with implementing the strategic direction of the board. And working closely with them on all developments. And, um, you know, so I have everything from fiscal responsibility through to operational management, through to, you know, the, the, the sales strategies for the association recruitment and all of those things. And I'm, I'm, what I would say at this point is um, I'm very grateful in the five years now that I've been doing this, that, again, there are some very talented individuals who have served on the board throughout that time. And they're... Um, they're an incredibly useful uh, and very helpful bunch of people and great sounding board. You know, we talk we talk every day at some point to one or more of the board members just generally chatting about uh, what's happening around the industry and the association. And in terms of how it's been, uh, right, it's been busy. <laughs> uh, it's been challenging. It's been frustrating. It's been massively rewarding. It's been emotional on occasion, but I wouldn't change a day of it. It's it's absolutely kept me busy. I remember uh, Stephen Vickers did say to me as part of as part of the handover when I took the role on, "You will never be short of things to do," and he's absolutely right. You know, there is always something happening around the association. What what I what I did do from day one and continue to do, although that's been slightly more difficult over the last few months is to set out with a very very firm policy of making the association and myself far more visible and accessible to its members you know we don't we don't just live in an ivory tower here in Watford you know we're we're wherever we need to be to support the activities of our members and to provide whatever help and assistance that we can but you know, there's been there's been a lot that's happened uh, in a relatively short space of time, and an awful lot of change around the around the association, and some of which was part of the strategic agenda when I joined, and other bits of which we have created and delivered in the interim. So, you know, in no particular order, in the last five years, we've designed and implemented uh, very successfully an advanced payment guarantee scheme. At the specific request of members, we've we've rebuilt and implemented a regional network of approved training centres so we can deliver affordable and accessible quality training all around the UK. We've completely rebuilt the collateral in terms of the training material that we have, course content, uh, and across administrational and operational disciplines. We've added an apprenticeship, successful apprenticeship module into our offering we've updated terms and conditions you know we've updated our marketing collateral and um, 
I should also mention, you know, we've got a we've got a really good team of people here at Watford, and one of the things I was very keen to do was, um, you know, uh, reflective of the uh, of the benefits I've had working for companies like Abel's and Harrow Green, who genuinely believe in investing in their people. We re-engaged with uh, investors in people, and we've rebuilt, you know, our own investment strategies in our team here at Watford. So because we're a very small team, so the opportunities for advancement are inevitably somewhat limited. But that doesn't mean that we can't explore how we can support our people in different ways. Uh, and so we've we've done that and done that very successfully. And I was delighted at um, at our last assessment meeting uh, last year. We, we were awarded the silver award by IP. So really, really excellent. We're not that far off gold award either. So a great bunch of people who work very hard together. And part of that process is also uh, I've designed and implemented a performance management mechanism here that rewards, you know, good work and and is is inextricably linked to training needs and development needs as well. And again, just for the benefit of listeners, because they won't believe it is true, I'm also party to that same process. And my performance is measured through formal appraisal with the president and the vice president every year. So I don't get away with it either. You know? <laughs> we're, we're all expected to do what we are tasked with doing. Uh, and rightly so. Rightly so. So so it's been a it's been a fantastically interesting five years. And of course, challenges along the way, because for, for four of those five years, we've had this thing called Brexit looming over us. And what does that mean for the industry? And of course, that's not gone away. We've we've had all kinds of issue and change within legislation. We've had the introduction of clean air zones, direct vision standards, all of these impacts on our industry. And then, of course, this year, heaven forbid, but we've 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 had this pandemic, which none of us saw coming. And that has completely changed how we've had to operate our business this year as as it will have done everybody else completely changed it and has again been a massive challenge but I think probably the most rewarding four or five months that I've had in this role yet. You did an awful lot regarding the pandemic. The BAR released a lot of information to the to the removers uh, not just its members but the removers in general. So I, I can only imagine that took up an immense amount of your time. It, it did, but but I think we also need to just remember that that actually the day job almost went out of the window. So so all of the strategic objectives that we set ourselves for this year in my discussions with the board, uh, you know, in in December and January, and then through our appraisal process, all of that sort of came to a crashing halt at the end of February and as we went into March, and our focus was entirely reactive in terms of um you know how do we deal with this issue that's in front of us and what's happened today and and i think one of the things we we wanted to take on board and we recognized very very early in this process was that there was so much information and a good deal of misinformation out there so much stuff to sift through that we felt that it ought to be our role to try to qualify what was out there that was relevant to our industry and our sector and so put those updates out that that would actually mean something rather than just saturating them with you know endless amounts of emails and bombarding them with updates here and there so we did work very hard 
at, at, at trying to reinforce to our members and to the industry generally that these were the things that we felt were important and that they needed to be aware of. And um, I do think that in this last five or six months, you know, our our mission to be that go-to voice in the industry has largely been recognised. You know, we do have very good contacts with, with ministerial departments now where we do have ongoing dialogue around what the challenges are for our industry. Our press contact database has grown significantly in that time. We've added new press contacts, which is always beneficial. Although most of the time they're not too interested in what's happening in the removals industry, unless there's a horror story, of course. Uh, so, you know, that's all been really useful. I've built great contacts within representatives of the other professional organisations and associations in the property market. So, you know, the Royal Institute, Chartered Surveyors, National Association of Estate Agents, Law Society and so on. You know, great contacts where we're able to now, and we still do meet every, virtually, of course, every fortnight. And we're a voice at that table. So, uh, you know, I think I think we've done a decent job at representing our industry, um, which is why I say, you know, for me, I think it's it's certainly been tough. It's been challenging, but it has been rewarding. Um, and we've had some some really good feedback from members and non-members alike who have been quite grateful for for the work we've done. You know, there's always more that we would like to have done. There's always more that we would like to achieve. But you know we have to apply a degree of reasonableness to that in terms of what we are capable of doing with the resource available to us and also recognising that our sphere of influence isn't always as great as we want it to be, but we're working hard to expand on that. What one thing would you change within the moving industry? And I'll let you answer that as both a remover. Yeah. And as the director general. So you can have two if you want. No, the answer it's one answer. Um, it, it's, I'm going to get on my soapbox here and apologies for that, but it's something that is, it just baffles me and always has, is that we as an industry are our own worst enemy. You know, we are, in my mind, we're a professional, uh, we're professional service providers in a professional industry, but we don't conduct ourselves always in that way. And we have this irrational thought process that we've just got to race to the bottom line all of the time and I just do not understand it you know and if we have that opinion of ourselves how do we expect the consumer to have anything that's any different and I I, if I could change one thing it would be and I'm not talking about cartels here but by the way or price fixing heaven forbid nothing like it but it is about recognizing that what we do is a value proposition it's not a commodity sale And so think about it, work out what your cost base is. And you know what, heaven forbid, and why should we be embarrassed? We need to make some profit because otherwise, why are we in business? So I just think sometimes we have a really, I don't know, indescribable, irrational view of what we're about as an industry. And if I could change anything, it would be that we're a profession. Let's treat ourselves that way. Let's market ourselves that way. Let's compete in that way. If you can compete at any level, we don't have to compete at the cheapest level. We don't. Competition should be on service and Correct. quality, not on price. Correct. Not as um, you know. Again, uh, if I go back to my days of sales management, when I when I would have uh, my sales meetings, if there was one thing that was guaranteed, and I do mean guaranteed, 
to get me up to boiling point. It's when we were when we were doing, you know, the follow ups, and I'd say to, well, why didn't we get that job then? Price lost it on price. What? You know, price is always an issue. It should never be the only issue. It should never be the only issue. And to my mind, if we're losing something on price and price alone, we haven't done our job properly. So, sorry, like I said, I get on my soapbox about that one, but I do think as an industry, we are our own worst enemy. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So where do you see yourself and the industry in the next five years? Ah, now that's a leading question. Selling service and not on price. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, love to. So in terms of the industry, I I think one of the things that um, has certainly changed over the last six months or so is that we have, to an extent reluctantly, but we have embraced technology far more in the last six months or so than perhaps we had in the last four or five years. You know, um, technology has been creeping into our industry for, for some time and um, uh, and nobody knows that better than you, of course. But there is still, I don't know whether reluctance is the right word, there's still a perhaps a thought process that it's not necessarily right or necessary for our industry to this to the same extent as maybe it is in other industries. But I do think the last six months has changed some of that perception and we've embraced the technologies that are available to us. And I think we will continue to do that and I hope we will continue to do that. And I hope we will look to make our administrational processes more efficient in the way that the consumer wants and demands in today's world. You know, we we, we have to be more reactive. Uh, we can't be in the place of saying, yes, I can get a salesman to you in 10 days time. It's too late. You know, we, we need to be able to deal with things properly and professionally in the in the context of the modern world. So I think we'll see more developments there. I think we'll see, I hope we'll see more integrated solutions between sales operations and delivery processes that automate some of that stuff. But the thing that won't change, in my humble opinion, in the next five years, or perhaps even the next 50 years or longer, is the fact that we're still going to send a truck and we're still going to send a group of people to do a very professional job. And long may that continue. So so I, I, I think, you know, there are evolutions developments um, through the administration and management processes for our industry that we could and should embrace. And we need to carry on investing in our people to make the service offering more robust and more professional as far as we can embrace new materials as they come into the market. You know, the, the environmental concerns are at the fore now, of course, and we should also market on those strategies. But the, I don't think at the same time, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think what I'm trying to say, but at the same time, I think we should also be proud of the heritage that is our industry and the fact that we do carry on providing that service in much the same way that we have for the last hundred years. In terms of me, good question. So on on Tuesday of this week, I turned sixty three. So in fact, happy belated birthday, Ian. Thank you, thank you. I'm not sure I'm celebrating, but there we go. So in five years' time, I suspect I will have headed off into semi-retirement, perhaps, if not retirement altogether. I don't see that that means for me that I will stop doing things altogether. I genuinely don't. I will still want to do something. Whether that is around 
the association and or any part of it, any of its component parts is really a matter for the board at the time to 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 um, discuss and decide whether they think I can still add value. But I would love to carry on delivering some kind of service to the industry if I could. The only thing we know with any degree of certainty is that we're currently buying a property in North Wales and that is where we will retire to at whatever point that comes along. But um, it's a few years away yet, I hope. You'll never get out of this industry, and you, you know yourself. Once you're in this removal game, you never get. I, I'm I'm not even a remover, and I tried to get out years ago, and I still couldn't get out. I, I genuinely don't want to get out, but equally, no, exactly. Equally, I do believe that there is a, a, a you know an opportune moment for succession plans to kick in place, and where you stop being perhaps the you know the the, the benefit and become more of a a gatekeeper and I don't want to be a gatekeeper so at whatever time it is right to do so then um, you know I'll move off and do something else but I, I very much hope it will still be around this industry. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off? So as I've mentioned um, uh, at the start of this we now we now live in uh, a boarding kennels which is which is um, situated in the middle of Thetford Forest and my wife manages this business on behalf of the owners. And so I've become an, a, 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 you know, a volunteer. That's right. I've become a volunteer dog walker in my spare time. So uh, last weekend, for example, I spent all day Saturday strolling dogs through the forest, and then all day Sunday catching up on the chores that I needed to do. So, but I'm I'm really happy to help Elaine and support with that stuff. As I've mentioned, we've got two wonderful daughters, so we spend as much time with with them and their respective husbands as we can. One lives in Shropshire and the other one in Norwich. So over the last six months, we haven't seen as much of them as we would have liked. But when we do get together, you know, we share joys and we, we, we share what we do. We go to concerts, we go walking, we go on holidays together and so on. So really love all of that stuff. I finally managed at the tail end of last year to convince the current Mrs. Studd that it was right that I bought myself a motorbike again. So I'm a born-again biker for the third time, I think, now. Uh, so I spend some time out and about on my little toy, uh, which I thoroughly enjoy. But, you know, inevitably, and like many of us, my mind is never too far from what we do here. It just isn't. You know, it's... You're constantly you just, you just can't switch off in this industry. You know, you're constantly thinking about, you know what has been done what is to do or what might be done constantly thinking yeah you know, but walking through the forest last saturday for example you know and it suddenly springs oh yes i must ring so-and-so and talk to him about that yeah and you think well actually while i'm walking the dog i might just as well do it exactly and so away you go but you know i i value my my family time above anything else um you know they are they are my delight and finally i like to end my podcast with a funny moving story. Do you have one to tell? Right. Do I have one to tell? There are so many that can't really be repeated in polite company. No, they can. They can, honestly. No, they can't. Seriously. No, you, 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 wait, you wait till you hear Paul on episode five. No, <laughs> Colin, seriously, they can't. I would land myself and others into so much trouble. But, you know, there, there have been so many laughs along the way i i said earlier on you know um, 
my time at uh, at Abel's, it was really, really hard work. And it was hard work. But the people just made it an absolute joy. And it was just a laugh from start to finish all the way through. But but just, just some things that spring to mind from various stages in my career. So so when, when I was portering for dad at the age of 13, 14, whatever, his his first full-time employee was a chap he recruited. He was a Cockney fella, and uh, he recruited him on the basis that this guy used to come round to our house with the sale uh, with the um, catalogue, you know, the sale order catalogue, and mum would be ordering stuff from him. So they got to know him that way, and uh, and it turned out that in some dim and distant point in the past, this guy had done a move or two. So so dad decided to employ him and uh, he came on board. So I, I became the sort of permanent porter of this chap. And he was a broad East Ender who was quite fiery, to say the least. And um, as as tended to happen in those days, whenever we stopped at a transport cafe, he'd go off to have his egg and bacon and cups of tea and however many cigarettes. And I'd stay out in the truck and drive it around the lorry park because I, you know, I was just absolutely mad on trucks even in those days. And um, Dad had bought an old Thames trader from Reeds at Peterborough, AFL 333B. I can see it now. I love that vehicle. <laughs> and we'd stop, we'd stop somewhere, I think it was Hatfield Way one day, and, and uh, uh, Cliff had gone in for his breakfast or whatever. And, and I'm driving the truck around the yard, and a you know, great big thing with a steering wheel out here, you know, and my, my little arms wouldn't reach around it. And uh, anyway, he came back, uh, having had his breakfast, and gave me the customary mouthful, gave me a clip around the ear and told me to get out the seat and all of that. And so he said, right, it's time to go. And he goes to start this thing up, and it wouldn't start. So I got all kinds of abuse about what you done to it, what you done to it. <laughs> so, of course, it wasn't just the key in those days. There was the crank handle. So he said, it's no good. I'm going to get out, and I'm going to have to do this thing, do this thing by hand. So he said, you know, I'm going to turn it over. So when it starts, you make sure you, you're down on the accelerator and get it going. Right, okay. So uh, he goes outside. And it was quite a warm morning, and he's swinging this crank handle around on this old Thames trader, and it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't firing, and his language was getting more and more choice. He was getting more and more angry, and I was just laughing. And, he, and he, what are you laughing at? Well, at the end of the day, because he'd given me such a hard time, all that was happening was that I pulled the stop cable out and jammed it. <laughs> deliberately i hasten to add and so when he found this out he came after me with the crank handle and i was running around this lorry park and everybody poured out from the cafe and he was giving me everything this <laughs> so i got all kinds of abuse for that then uh, I mean, also, you know, you think, I don't know whether it's funny stories, but it's just how it was in those days. You know, again, the Thames trader, you know, on a cold morning, you've got no hope of getting it started unless you actually lit a bonfire under the thing to warm it through because the diesel would wax up and, uh, you know, the, the water systems would freeze up. So many is the morning we've actually lit a bonfire under the things or stuffed a burning oil rag down into the air cleaner to actually get things going. Um, oh, my words. Yeah, just different times. Uh, and another occasion uh, when I was still with Dad, we we took on uh, a chap. He was our yoppy youth opportunity scheme, and uh, this guy was sixteen, and and he he became my porter, strangely enough, uh, and he worked with me all of the time. 
and he was he was a good little lad you know a cheeky little thing and it, in fact it became a he, he to me was a bit like me to the cockney chap you know so I <laughs> and uh anyway one one friday and it was always a friday of course he didn't turn up for work and i was i was not at all happy with him to say the least because that meant i ended up working with um uh you know with just a, a, a random casual chap which i never really enjoyed Anyway, on the on the next day, on the Saturday, I was walking through the town in Stamford and I saw this guy and there was nothing, clearly nothing wrong with him, you know. So I ran up behind him and gave him a cuff around the ear and started really giving him verbals about why he'd let me down, not realising it was his identical twin. So I was <laughs> beating up on the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah, all good times. Uh, and then um, I, I also embarrassed myself somewhat on one occasion when I was with um, Abe, well, I didn't think I embarrassed myself, but it, it became that. Uh, we were doing a move for the Royal Household. Um, we were moving Prince Charles's office from Buckingham Palace to St. James's, and the Lord Chamberlain's office was going the other way. And so we were on site there for probably two weeks, all in all, and we were we were being accommodated in the, in the barracks, in the guards' barracks. Um, we were having our meals and so on in the uh, in the staff quarters at the palaces and it, yeah you know just terrific experience but at the outset of this particular project we'd had a briefing because we weren't the only ones there there were you know there were um, other tradesmen doing other things and we'd all been gathered into this hall and we'd been given a briefing you know if you see this person you must talk to him or you must address him as your majesty or your royal highness or, or, or whatever it might be and we'd all been told that we, we should keep any conversation down to no more or no less than that and shouldn't attempt to engage beyond that. Well, uh, on one particular day, uh, one of the other chaps and I were taking a filing cabinet up the stairs in St. James's Palace. And this, this vision of loveliness came down the staircase the other way, which was Princess Diana, just very casually dressed. And she was an absolute delight. So the filing cabinet went down and we just stood there having a chat. And there was none of this, you know, your highness or whatever. It was really, you know, how's it going, boys? Are you OK? And all this kind of stuff. And um, to say to say the powers that be were beside themselves with envy because we'd had this chat and they hadn't was, was, was quite amusing. But I made the mistake of saying very publicly, I think I'm in love. <laughs> she was gorgeous. She was absolutely gorgeous. And um, we had an in-house magazine at Abel's at the time, which I used to contribute to now and again. But but in the next edition appeared this poem, an ode from a study to a princess. And this <laughs> thing just gathered a momentum all of its own. So there was this, you know, this this dialogue going on, or this supposed dialogue going on between me and Princess Diana all the time. And then, of course, as things transpired and, and things started to go wrong for her and uh, the Prince of Wales, you know, I would be getting questioned about saying, oh, have you got anything to do with this study? <laughs> no, unfortunately, unfortunately not. What a lovely story that is. Yeah. And then, and then I, I suppose maybe, maybe just finally, again, the people you meet along the way, we, we did a, a, a move from the Isle of Man uh, many years ago, which was another fantastic experience for all kinds of reasons. But, the 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 chap who or the family that were moving off the Isle of Man were were moving over to Norfolk and they had this enormous house on on the island 
you know, it had its own swimming pool, it had its own ballroom and all that kind of stuff. It was it was a phenomenal property. And we we'd been we'd been away over the weekend. We'd done an office move from uh, Great Yarmouth up to Aberdeen to do with the, the the oil industry, and then on the Sunday we'd driven down to Fleetwood to get the boat across to the, to the Isle of Man, ready to start this job on the Monday morning. So we we were all properly booted and suited. You know, with Abel's the the presentation was absolutely everything. We were properly booted and suited to go and do what was really and very clearly a very prestigious job. So we arrive at this property on the Monday morning, circa 8.30. Uh, I, was, uh, I was the foreman in charge of the job, so I went to the door and bang on the door to introduce myself. And this chap, this uh, sort of uh, elderly chap, came to the door, and the door opened just a squeak. And so I just sort of said to him, oh, good morning, sir. My name's Ian. I'm your removals foreman, so I'm looking forward to working with you. And I will never forget his greeting, his exact words, was, well, you can off, he said. Nobody comes into my house before 10 o'clock and just shut the door in my face. No. So I thought, ah, okay, this is going to be a challenging few weeks. But you know what? That chap was one of the nicest people I ever met in my entire life. And he was a joy to work for. But just as a way of saying hello to each other, that really wasn't the best. No, that's, that's, that's some introduction, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But we had a terrific time working for him, so. But, you know, just so many great memories. But but most of all, my memories and my fondness is around the people that I've worked with and continue to work with. Ian, I can't thank you enough for giving up your time today to help me record with Movie Matters. I truly appreciate your time and a massive thank you from me. Yeah, thank you, Colin. It's been a joy. Enjoy the rest of your day. Will do. Thanks. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 6 of Moving Matters. If you did, then please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters, which they can listen along to on their podcast player of choice. And please, if you can, I would really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. Many thanks to those that already have. My thanks and appreciation go to Ian Studd for giving up his time to record this bumper episode. Thank you again, Ian. If you would like to know more about the British Association of Removers and the services they offer, then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that can be relayed to our listeners, do reach out to me. Don't be shy now. I want your story told. So please complete the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Send me a tweet at Moving Matters PC or email me host at movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And as a side note, the BAR Young Movers Group Council will be climbing the highest mountains in England, Scotland, and Wales within 24 hours to raise funds for the RBA, the Removers Benevolent Association, in their National Three Peaks Challenge. If you would like to support the group and make a donation to a worthy cause, please visit www.justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash BAR Young Movers 3 Peaks. Alternatively, you will find a link within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage. Look out for an update on their achievement in a future episode. Good luck to those involved. 
Well, that is all from me. So until next time, keep moving. <laughs>